we two weeks ago looked at the first watch out in Luke chapter 12. And we're coming to the second watch out um, in this passage as well. The first one directed specifically, very narrowly, to the disciples, to the twelve, where he takes them aside, he calls them friends, he is, um, uh, we're in, the, in transition from the, the home of a Pharisee where he ate and offended many by his words. Um, they're getting ready to transition into a great multitude that, we are, that are waiting for his ministry. Uh, and, and Luke says innumerable at the beginning of chapter 12. And so in this uh, transition from the home of a Pharisee in a public uh, meal to this uh, place of, of expansive ministry, Jesus takes the disciples and gives them this warning. He warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees. He warns them about what they just came out of, what they just witnessed. They had just it, it watched Christ engage them, the Pharisees. He just watched this interchange, and they heard, and they, and they hear, heard the piercingness in which Christ accused them and, and declared in a prophetic utterance a woes upon them, and, and we should identify it as that. That's a typical prophetic statement that he used uh, we can read those similar things in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and all through the Old Testament prophets um, addressing the leadership of the people. He then comes into this very public ministry. And again, an innumerable multitude has been waiting for him. And he is about to minister there to some capacity when one from the crowd uh, wants his is matter dealt with first before Christ really gets a chance to teach anything. Uh, this is very pressing on this man. And so he calls out in the midst of this crowd, maybe on the front row, I don't know how he got there. But he said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He comes to Christ with this matter of his uh, family estate and how it is being distributed. A very... Um, how should we say this, mundane, really, uh, situation uh, and circumstance where, uh, and Christ's response is almost uh, expected. Uh, I, that's not what I'm about. I'm not about um, becoming a, a second law judge over you like Moses. That's not who I'm going to be. It's not uh, in the realm that I function. And, and frankly, I, I, I'm not really interested in that, what you are demonstrating is something in your heart that does need to be addressed, and that's where Christ is going to put his finger and put his attention, his teaching. What's going on in the heart of men that here be confronted with the Son of God, who is full of the Spirit and of truth and, is, and miracles and all the things that Christ is offering and is ministering, um, you want to bring this mundane thing before me as a priority when there's this huge multitude, innumerable, according to Luke, waiting for ministry. You want it all to boil down to your stuff. Am I getting what I'm due? And apparently he wasn't satisfied with whatever other avenues were available for him to settle this. Some have contended that the brother that he's talking about may have been a follower of Jesus Christ and been in the crowd as well. Um, we're not told that. Um, there, there is some motivation. There is some uh, force behind him coming and wanting Christ to settle this. Um, but he says, I want the inheritance divided with me. We are, don't know anything about his uh, rights in this case. Um, the assumption would be that he's a younger brother, that the older brother received the inheritance and chose not to share it, if you will, with his younger brother. But all these are assumptions. All of these things are irrelevant because um, what is being uh, measured here is not this person's legal rights. They're not being measured at all. Christ isn't really interested in them. In fact, what we're going to find out is that Christ says, you know what? 
in a godly life, you abrogate legal rights. You simply surrender them um, because they aren't the issue for you. They aren't about um, what makes us tick and what, what, we're, what our priorities are. And so therefore, um, they are something Christ is going to directly address. So we're not going to get into a lot of that because, frankly, it's all conjecture and it draws our attention away from what Christ wants us to focus in on um, and it draws us away to focus in on what we would tend to focus in on, what the man would focus in on. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to get caught, trapped, if you will, looking at the physical when Christ's whole purpose in this passage is to draw us to the spiritual. And we're going to need God's help to do that this morning. So let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the passage before us and for the powerful message that it communicates. And Lord, our prayer is that you might help us, that we might ourselves draw up our attention and our thoughts and our uh, concerns out of the uh, simple and mundane aspects of life that we know ultimately are, we have full dependence upon you in that regard, that we might engage rather this morning as you call us in this passage to set our attention, our sights, our vision upon heaven. Lord, we need your help in this. Guard this time. That it might be pleasing your sight. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, obviously not the answer the man wanted to receive. I'm not your judge. I'm not an arbitrator. I am not here to settle these worldly matters. That's not what I'm about. I have bigger fish to fry, and Christ really does. He's there to settle issues of the heart, to settle sin issues, to be the go-between, the arbitrator, if you will, between God and man, not between men and men. He's going to settle that once and for all. What is your relationship with God like? And, uh, what, uh, and to resolve that fundamental issue. That doesn't mean that God is disinterested or insensitive to our physical needs. And certainly that is not relayed here at all. But rather, it is not a priority of our coming to God. Our coming to God should not have as its priority our physical needs. Now, can we go to Jesus with such requests? Well, maybe not physically in the middle of a crowd, but we can. We do it through prayer. And yes, we even do that in a crowd sometimes. And uh, I've, there, there's a level of frustration, I think, that, that we have with our inordinate prayers regarding worldly matters. And the lack of praying regarding spiritual matters um, that's in our daily prayer life and sometimes in our public prayer life, often reflected there as well. So, do we have opportunity to go to Christ with our with the matters or concerns of our heart? Yes, just like this man, and just like this man, too often the focus of going to God, going to Jesus, with a concern of our heart is about earthly matters and not about heavenly matters. And so, lest we be too quick to jump on this man and say, what was he thinking going to Jesus with this? Well, what were we thinking going to Jesus with? Things not so dissimilar from this. So Christ takes this opportunity to teach the multitude. And in teaching the multitudes, we know that we are dealing with a mixed multitude. And so how does Christ teach mixed multitudes? You notice when he's teaching the disciples in a very, uh, pretty much private setting, very direct teaching. When he gets into a public setting, he immediately is going to jump into parabolic teaching, parables, using parables and teaching with them. And so he um, is going to give a parable. But before that, he's going to give the thrust of the parable. He's going to give it right out there. Here we go, a second warning. The warning is in verse 15, take heed and beware of covetousness. 
For one's life is not consistent in the abundance of the things he possesses. So here is that forthright statement. And Luke loves to do this, doesn't he? We've seen this over and over again. He likes to make the, the, the bold declaration. Boom, there it is. Now, we're going to develop it. Okay? And uh, i got to tell you, my hermeneutics class and my preaching classes in, in seminary, we were always told not to do that. Um, because if you give the whole force of your message up front, no one has to listen to the rest. Um, is that true? I don't know. Sometimes it is. You know, okay, well, that's the message. So now I can jump to my iPod or my imagination or whatever. And so we're supposed to lead you into it, and eventually you get, you get it. Um, but Luke has a different format. He has a different style. And his style is, I'm going to tell you right up front this forceful, very succinctly stated message that God has. Now we're going to develop it. And so here's the point, and now... How is it going to be supported? And so he goes into it. He says, beware of covetousness. Let's define this very quickly. Um, covetousness is that desire um, for that which you don't have that you may or may not even believe you need. Um, of course, we can quickly identify, well, thou shalt not covet is part of the Ten Commandments. We can go back into that setting. Um, and we understand that that was always in reference to your neighbors, what your neighbors have. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's class, wife, manservant, maidservant, critters, whatever's your neighbors. You're not going to covet them. And so the idea is, here's what I do not have, and I desire that which I see other people have, and I wish I had that. Um, now, our neighbor is a very broad term that we can use today because we have our neighbors coming into our very living rooms via television, right? Your neighbors have this. Don't you want it to? You know, and I love the old commercials where it shows the suburbanites and all of them have their cookie-cutter homes and they all come out at the same exact time and uh, then they all turn and look at the one guy who's different. Oh, I wish I had that. You know, whether it's his wife, his car, his kids, his yard, his, his uh, briefcase, his suit. It doesn't matter what it was. You want what your neighbor has. Well, that's essentially what it's there to do, is to try to sell you this by creating this level of discontentment, by causing you to covet, desiring something that you do not have. And what is covetousness? Well, we understand what's involved in, in terms of what's within us, but how does the Bible describe it? The Bible puts covetousness on the same plane. And, and this is in the Ten Commandments. This is in many scriptures um, when you have lists of sins uh, on the same plane as murder, as adultery, on the same plane as and particularly defined as idolatry. Covetousness, the Bible says, which is idolatry. Why? Because you're setting your heart on something that you believe you want to attain. And when you set your heart on something, whether it be half of the inheritance, and you make it a priority in your life, that has become an idol in your life. It has become something that you are going to let drive your decision-making, drive your life. And it, it, the Bible rightly describes it, that covetousness is idolatry. Now, how dangerous is that? Um, after all, you know, the, the biggies are, you know, murder and adultery. Th those are the big ones, right? Um, I'm going to shock you here a little bit. Uh, there is murder going on in Israel. There is adultery going on in Israel physically. Um, but you know what got Israel in the deepest trouble was her idolatry. And God says, I ain't tolerating it. I'm not tolerating that. You're gone. You keep setting up these false gods and worshiping them. And yes, adultery is part of that worship. And, and yes, he talked about the social sins. But what you pick up over and over again throughout the Old Testament is that God seemed to tolerate a lot of sin, but he would not tolerate idolatry. And this idolatry isn't God replacement. It's God sharing. Okay? And this is 
where I want to I want to make this point because I think we think well I'm I'm not that covetous that that's an idol in my life. Yes, it probably is. Here's why: Israel idolatry was not replacing God. It was to share with God. That is, we're going to worship Jehovah God on Saturday or at the temple, and then we're going to go over to the high place and we're going to worship Baal or Moloch or any of the gods of the Canaanites. You see, they wanted to serve both gods. And God says, this is unacceptable to me. I am a jealous God. You will worship and serve me and me alone. Or you will incur my wrath. So, when we talk about covetousness is idolatry, and we look at here, the second bewaring, the, the first one was watch out for hypocrisy, doing all the right things, all the good works, all the spiritual activity, but for all the wrong reasons, without the motivation of love um, and serving God. The second beware is covetousness. Because what you're doing, you're setting up something alongside of God in your life. And this, brethren, is unacceptable to God entirely. Now, what can be covered? We usually associate covetousness with material things, um, but I don't know that it's limited to that. And, and uh, the Ten Commandments describe that, a, a, a wideness to covetousness um, is this, in, this desire for that usually in the physical realm. And and such a desire that it moves us to try to take possession of it more and more and more. And we need to move into his parable to really get a good feel for how wide and how extensive and how um, dangerous covetousness can be. So let's look at the parable beginning in verse 16. Parable is simply a story with a meaning behind it. So let's look at it. It says, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. All right, well, you say, well, did he covet something? Well, not yet. He just got a lot of stuff. Let's go on. So he said, Thought within himself, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? Oh, wouldn't that be a good problem to have? I have so much stuff. What do I do with it? I don't have room for it. So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, what was he coveting? What he was coveting was his retirement. Boy, oh man, did I just say that? How many of you can't wait? Not now, not that I said that. He was coveting his retirement. He was looking at all that he had, and, and rather than putting it to work for the kingdom or to God's glory, he was going to stockpile it. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure this is what every financial advisor tells you to do. Stockpile it here on earth to prepare for a time when you can sit back, eat, drink, and be at ease. Because I have much stocked up for many years, and now I can retire. That's what he was coveting. He was coveting, I can build bigger barns, I can have a bigger storehouse, I can save up all of my crops, and I can relax. I can take it easy. I can, I can just kind of coast. I can retire. Essentially, is what he was coveting. I want to retire. I just can't wait to retire. Um, and, and I can just uh, live off of this great harvest that I received this year and retire. And I got to tell you, that's the American dream from what I can tell. And it's not just American. I guess in France, that's the dream too. And if you put off the retirement two years, that's cause for warring in the streets. Oh, now, Pastor, this is getting kind of weird. Parables are like that. Aren't they great? You see, we would expect to hear a story of some guy who planted a tree on his side of the fence and he, and, and he saw his neighbor plant a tree on his side of the fence and his tree over there grew and had fruit and his didn't have much and so he jumped the fence and grabbed that fruit because he coveted it. That's the kind of story we would expect, right? Because that's our concept of covetousness. 
But Christ goes into something that we look at today and say, well, that's the American dream. Because the American dream is fundamentally built on covetousness. It just is. We want to get better off, and I want my kids to be better off than me, and, and we want to have all these things built up so that I can retire and sit back and just enjoy life. And God says, you're a fool. I didn't say that, okay? God says, you're a fool. The American dream is foolish in God's eyes. God says, you're a fool. You're going to die tonight. Maybe not tonight, but what does it say? This night. Yeah, this night. I'll take your soul this night. You want to talk to your soul and tell your soul how wonderful things are and, and you're moving towards your dream of of eating and having plenty to eat, plenty to drink, and just taking it easy. I can just retire, put up my feet, and just just uh, be merry and, and, and with, with no concerns in the world. And God says, you're a fool. Your soul will be required of you. And uh, apparently this man wasn't prepared for that, was not ready for that, which was obvious. And we'll show how obvious it was here in a second. But um, God puts a little twist of the knife. You know, the knife is in there. You're gone. But now I'm going to put a little twist on it. Who's going to get your stuff now? All that stuff that you put so much hope in, that you put so much energy into, all that stuff that you've acquired, that you are trusting in, and that is idolatry, is when you trust in something other than God. That's idolatry. And so, who's going to enjoy it now? I'll tell you who's going to enjoy it. People that didn't like him. Why didn't they like him? And I have to believe that the Christmas carol was built off of this parable. Why didn't they like him? How do you know that, Pastor? You don't know that there's people, that his family didn't even care for him, that he didn't have friends. Why didn't they like him? Because he was selfish. What did he do? Did he share any of his great crop? There's one little word there. It's a little three-letter word. In verse 18, it says, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns, build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. What was he required to do by... Hebraic law with all of his crops and goods. He was supposed to give. He was supposed to give, from what my calculations are, about 22% of it away, not counting offerings and alms. He was supposed to care for those that um, were poor in his community. He was supposed to care for extended family. He was supposed to be generous. He was supposed to um, give. And instead, what does he do? He wants to keep it all for himself. And it doesn't matter how much it is, because it's never enough, really, ultimately. But he's going to build bigger and bigger barns, and he's going to keep all of his goods for his own personal ease. And God says, this is foolish. You're a fool. And I'm going to take you tonight, and then who's going to enjoy it? And the man didn't have anyone. He hadn't invested himself in loving relationships. He had invested himself in a right relationship with God. He had invested himself in his community. He hadn't done any of those things. He was the quintessential Scrooge. And we find him here with nothing of any real value. And no one was going to benefit from it ultimately. Now, even if this wasn't true, and you might sit here and say, no, i got family that love me, and, and uh, when I die, they're going to get it. Let me tell you, um, I don't know how many of you have had the privilege of dealing with family after the death of a loved one. Father, mother, sister, brother, grandmother, grandfather. Um, as, as a pastor, I get to 
be more intimately involved in that than I really ever want to be. Um, but I'm called upon into that. And i got to tell you, and I've told you this probably many times before, um, I haven't seen one transfer of inheritance that went without a fight. And it doesn't matter how meager the goods were and it doesn't, or how great the goods were, I just haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. There weren't hard, hard, hard feelings between people, that there wasn't actual fighting, that there wasn't division, that there wasn't strife. Um, and, and, and some of that I have to say, well, that, that, that must be, that must be, have something to do with, with uh, just the grief of going through that. But uh, when, when your relative is there on the deathbed and just passed and within 15 minutes they're fighting over the purse in the dresser, that's what's going to happen to your stuff. Now, how much do you really want to leave? See, the question's asked there. If you put your trust in that and your soul isn't right, what's going to happen to that stuff? It's going to be fought over, divided. And, of course, Uncle Sam's going to come and figure out a way to get his share of that as well. Um, I don't know why he thinks he deserves a share of that, but he does. And so he's going to go after it as well. And so the question is out. Even logically, even if you look at this rationally, do you see the foolishness of what you're doing? Because of the temporalness of this world, do you see the foolishness of covetousness? It is foolish rationally, but it's also foolish spiritually in that he comes up in the next Verse, verse 21, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The only way I would contend that you will ever become rich toward God is through the opposite of covetousness, which is a a humble contentment. A contentment only the Spirit can provide when we submit ourselves to the Father, come into a right relationship with Him, and we depend upon Him entirely for all things. First of all, salvation. And then we make the declaration that God is good, will care for all of my needs. He's cared for my biggest need. He will certainly care for my smallest need. My greatest need is not to eat, drink, and be merry and to have a life of ease. That is not your number one need in life. Why is it the number one goal of our life? I don't understand it. God's met the number one need of our life, which is a spiritual one to deal with sin. And it is certain then that he is capable and willing to meet all the needs of our life. And so when we are rich toward God in faith, trusting in him, all these other things are met. They will be cared for. And... He says this in verse 31, Seek the kingdom of God and, and all these things shall be added to you. Once we seek God's kingdom, these other things just fall in line. But when they become the focus of our energy and our attention and our, our goal setting, we've lost something. We're trying to share and serve two gods. We're trying to serve God on Sunday and we're trying to serve this idol the rest of of our time to establish this. And God says, this isn't what you are called to do. One God, you trust in Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and He will care for you. He'll take care of all these other things if we will seek out the kingdom of God. He goes on and says... uh, Do not worry about your life, in verse 22, about what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. And for the second time now, we find life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. In verse 15, it was said this way, One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. It does not define you. It does not uh, establish your value. I know the world thinks it does, but the world is wrong. The world thinks that a rich man is worth more than a poor man. We understand that. We also understand that that's not really true. Our forefathers of this nation understood that that wasn't true. That God made all men equal. 
doesn't mean we all have equal intellects, but all have equal value. So whether you are a few cells in your mother's womb, you have value before God. Or whether you are a person who is not quote-unquote contributing to society because you're 102 years old and you're dead weight on our economy, you have value. Because you are not measured by what you possess, what you accomplish. The measure of human value before God is existence. The fact that you are makes you of a, a nature of a, of a value, of a, of a qualitative and quantitative value that God says, I will care for you. And he did by sending his son to die for us, for the world, every single person. And so the world says the rich man is worth more. He's more important. He has more values, contributing more than the poor man. And God says, not the case. But in fact, it's the wise that God comes to. And the wise sometimes are very poor. Life is more than food. Body is more than clothing. You, your life is more than just what you possess. It does not define you. It does not establish your value in God's sight, nor should it establish our value between us. In the book of James, of course, James addresses this quite heavily in the church. When someone comes in, they have no nothing to contribute. They might be even a negative on your church. They might be a drain because you have to support them. A widow comes into the church. And a rich man comes in the same day. Who gets your attention? A poor man comes in who has nothing to offer but himself. And a rich man comes in offering the world and everything. And, and you know, 10% of, you know, if he would just tithe, man, we'd have offerings of $10,000 a week. You know, um, who are you going to be attentive to? We're going to follow James' instruction. We're going to be attentive to whoever's serving God and following Him, regardless of what He owns. Because that doesn't define us. It doesn't um, establish us as godly. It doesn't establish us as even wise. And in fact, here, a very wealthy man in this story was considered by God a great fool because he trusted in his riches and stored them up for himself and was not rich toward God. So our life is more than this. And again, like the last warning, he's going to come to this warning with a consider statement. Okay, so you see a format. We've got a, a format developed here. Last time it was beware of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Pharisees. And he says, you're worth more than a bunch of sparrows. Remember that? Well, now, beware of covetousness. He says, listen, you're worth more than ravens. Aren't you glad that we're worth more than birds to God? And so he says, you're worth more than a bunch of birds to me. Um, and, and I feed the birds. They, they're taken care of. And uh, you can worry about getting fed, but it's not going to help you. You can't do anything by worrying. And this is an important verse for me. It's, it should be my life verse. Why, by which of you by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? We can't affect the least on ourselves. Why are we anxious about all these other things that really ultimately we have very little control over? He says, will I care for you or won't I? I care for birds. Why? Do you think I'm not willing to care for you and your needs? I, I dress the lilies in splendor and, and they're only there for a few days. Can't I take care of your apparel and the, the clothing of, of your body? And again, verse 28 at the conclusion, O you of little faith, 
And he reiterates the same statement, verse 29, do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. These are the things the nations of the world seek after. Your Father knows that you need these things. God knows your needs. And is incredibly capable of meeting those needs. Do you agree? Do we agree? God knows and has the power to do that. Why are we worried? See, every financial counselor will come to you and say that you need to worry about tomorrow. That's their job, to make sure you're anxious about tomorrow. I wonder if my investments are going to be secure enough so that when I come to be, you know, 52, when I'm, I'm planning on retiring when I'm 52, just to let you know. Um, when I become 52, I have to have enough to last the rest of my life, and I'm probably going to live till I'm 112, so that's 60 years i got to store up enough for... Si- you didn't know I was planning on living to 112? Jeremy knows better. He knows I'm not planning on living past 2033 or something, right? It's in your Bible. Okay. Um, just threw that out there. Um, so I, I need to store up enough. God's already got enough. Do you really believe that? Do we believe that God has enough to care for us? And you might say, well, but, 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 and I love that word when Christians say it. It means, but I don't have enough faith. That's what it really means. When we say, yeah, I believe that, but, what we really should say after the but is, I don't have any faith in what I believe. I give lip service to it. I give mental assent to it. But I do not trust what I believe. Or it would radically change my life to conform to these statements. And so we are called upon to be rich towards God to seek out the kingdom of God, to not engage in covetousness, to not have as the goal of my life a time when I will sit back with great ease and be able to eat, drink, and be merry with not a problem in the world. That, if, if that is the expectation of what you think success is, you are an idolater. Because that's not God's definition of success. God's definition of success is it will work till Jesus comes. And we will enter into our Sabbath rest at that point. And the work between now and when Jesus comes is going to be hard. It's going to be uh, a struggle. It's going to have opposition. It's going to be painful. And then we will have our Sabbath rest. And Hebrews talks about that extensively. And he's talking to a group of believers who hadn't gotten to the point of shedding of blood yet for their faith. And he says, listen, there re- that remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You're going to have to endure. The statement is endure, 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 endure. The opposite of the endure statement is be at ease. What is the goal of the American life? Ease. Ease and comfort. That's the carrot that's put out in front of us. Ease, comfort. And God says... The kingdom of God has a very different perspective. What should have the rich man done with his crops? He should have shared them. He should have cared for others who couldn't care for themselves or he should have participated in the, in the uh, worship of his nation with it. He should have done many things but not stored them all up for himself. This is the result of covetousness and the result of fear. In verse 32 of Luke 12, brings the core behind our lack of faith out, and that is our fear. We're afraid God's really mean instead of good. He says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Incredible, isn't it? We do not serve an ogre God. He wants to give us His kingdom. 
That's why Jesus came and suffered and died and took my place on the cross and covered my sin with his blood. That's why um, he did all of that so that I could participate in his kingdom. He, he, he went incredibly far in that and even brought me into the very family so I could be a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And so the inheritance that I am longing for does, is not somewhere in South Carolina. And it's not in Ohio. That's where our... My wife and I's parents are still living there. And no, we're not counting the days till they pass. We don't. That's not where our inheritance is. That's not where our hope is. That's not where our desire is. But it's in His kingdom. A kingdom not made with hands. And so we are called upon to invest in that kingdom. How do we do that? How do I build up in this, this eternal place that God has for me? This Sabbath rest that will last forever and ever where I will enjoy that in the presence of God Himself with all my needs met, where I will live eternally due to the river of life flowing from the throne of God and, and the trees of life that are growing on its shores. That, that's our objective. That's our goal. That's what God has offered. And it is certain that if that is where He wants to get us, that He's going to uh, supply for us everything necessary to that point. He's already supplied the greatest part. He's already supplied the most abundant because He's met the greatest need for our sin. And He is drawing us there. And so we ought to have our objectives there. And if our heart is there, our mind is there, and we're thinking those terms, what are we going to do with this big cash crop that just came in? We're not going to store it up for ourselves, so that we can have a season of ease. But rather, it says, we're going to sell what you have, we're going to give alms. That's, I'm in verse 33, by the way. I'm reading the Bible, so this isn't my opinion. Sell what you have and give alms. And alms are what you give above and beyond anything you would give to, um, in the Old Testament, anything that was required of tithing and things like that. Alms is what you gave to the poor. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old. When we give, we are putting away into a treasury house that doesn't fade. A treasury house where the interest goes on eternally. And Bernanke has nothing to do with it. That's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, if you're wondering. He can't stop it. He can't take it away. He can't affect it. He can't influence it. Congress can't touch it. But it's there. Paul talks about this in Philippians. When he talks about the fact that Philippians' generosity is, is being credited for them in heaven. What should have this man done with this bumper crop? He should have used it to invest in his eternity. He should have used it, first of all, by making every, taking its resources to make every effort to find out how can I be right with God. He should have then, once he found out and submitted to that, used it to care for God's flock, for the those around him that God has put into his uh, circle of influence or circle of contacts to care for them. He should have laid up treasure in heaven rather than treasure on earth because the treasure in heaven is eternal, cannot be destroyed, will not um, be stolen. Um, and we come to a very powerful summation of this warning and that is, Wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure at? And I got to say, I, I, if it was sufficient to compare ourselves to others, we would probably come out pretty good in this church. Frankly, that, that's my perspective. I think there is a, a generous spirit and a, and a desire to serve others in our church. 
and, and I see it out distancing and outpacing other churches uh, of substantially greater size. And, and so if I were to sit down and, and compare you to and compare my life and, and our ministry and, and our churches to others, we would sit back and say, we're doing a pretty good job and covetousness isn't a big issue for us. But, brethren, that's not good enough. And I'll tell you why. When I go and share the gospel with people and they, on the basis of comparing themselves to other men, conclude they're not really bad sinners, guess what? They don't get saved. But when they compare themselves to God's standard, they find out, whoa, I'm the worst. And brother, yes, we can look around and say, well, we're better than that, or we're better than that, or we don't do that, or I don't do that. And we can pick on this man and say, well, I'm not trying to build bigger barns and greater storehouses. I'm not trying to do that. And I'm always willing to share. Uh, you know, I'm not like that. But that's not the standard. The standard isn't be better than someone else. The standard is what is God's expectation of us? Our God's expectation of us is that we recognize everything we possess here on earth is not ours simply for our enjoyment. It is not for our ease. It is not just so we can be happy while others are suffering. It is as stewards of something that God has entrusted for us to worship Him with. And it is necessary that we uh, re-measure ourselves, not against others. And I could very easily say, well, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I wouldn't, I, I, I can look at other people's decisions and say, well, I would never make those decisions. I don't make those decisions. You know, I'm very frugal with my life and I can go around like this and I'm okay. Uh, you know, I'm not covetous. But when I compare myself to this standard in God's word, I go, oh my. Oh my. And my conclusion is, God forgive me for my heart is too much trusting in the things of this world. My heart is too much trusting in the summation of my possessions. My heart is too much set there, my concern there, and anxious there. And it's demonstrating that too much of my treasure is here. And therefore, too much of my heart is here in serving that treasure. You see, fear keeps us. Fear is the foundation of anxiety and of worry which Christ teaches us sin here. That fear is because we do not believe in a good Father who wants to give us stuff. He wants to give us the kingdom. He did not create, He did not establish in eternity past a second-rate salvation. He wants to give it all. I mean, you cannot read through Ephesians and not discover the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of what God wants for his people. It's amazing. This is a good God we serve. He will respond as we are willing to grow our faith into really seeking the kingdom of God and being content with such things as we have, knowing that he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, contentment isn't based on having enough. Contentment is knowing God has enough. His promises are enough. And we can function there. We can live there. We can be content and satisfied there. 
Contentment, my friends, will not come to you by getting more. Contentment will come, really, according to what I read just a little bit ago, by giving what you have and investing in eternity. Sometimes selling what we have. And so, should we be satisfied that we are not guilty of covetousness because we outdistance some other group of believers in generosity because we are the uh, high on the list uh, comparison to other people within the church? No, our measure is God's word. And there we find that I don't measure up to that standard yet. I need to grow my faith. Do I trust God enough to share all that I have with any who come? As a church, we must have that kind of heart as the guard for us against idolatry called covetousness. Set not your heart on the things of earth where, wrath, where moth and rust steal, thieves break in steal, where moth and rust corrupt. Set your heart on heaven where neither thief approaches nor moth destroys. Let this be the goal for yourself. Seek the kingdom of God. Lesser things will care for themselves. God knows you need them. He's a good God, capable God. He will take care of you. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your great love for us. We rejoice in the promises that you've declared here. But Lord, we're convicted and we have to be. Um, because just as the disciples and the multitudes needed this warning, we need it regularly in our life to watch out. Just as the leaven of Pharisaism is easy to be brought into our life, so is covetousness. We take your warning to heart. We recognize its import, and we pray that we might be found following after your kingdom. Lord, help us as a church to seek it with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Lord, that we might not be anxious, fearful, worrying. Lord, you've provided so much for us far beyond our needs. Lord, help us. We might not set our hearts on a life of ease because of it, but on a life of service. For your kingdom's sake. Praise in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.